A New York City jury finds former President Trump liable for battery and defamation in a lawsuit by a writer who says he raped her in the mid-90s. It's Wednesday, May 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the verdict against Trump. It comes hours before he'll be in New Hampshire for a CNN town hall, an event that drew criticism even before the jury's decision. We know what happens when a major news network gives Donald Trump free airtime and an unfettered platform. Also, a preview of today's April inflation report and this hour. Will airlines be able to keep up with the expected busy summer travel season? That type of demand in a system that is woefully underfunded and understaffed is likely to create substantial frustrations among travelers. In sports, Celtics lose. Sunny in the 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden says he's considered invoking the 14th Amendment to avoid a catastrophic default on the federal government's debt. But NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden doesn't think there's enough time to litigate the matter. Biden says the 14th Amendment could allow the U.S. government to keep making payments on the nation's debt, but he expects the move would be challenged in the courts. The problem is it would have to be litigated. And in the meantime, without an extension, it would still end up in the same place. Biden was speaking at the White House after meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders about the debt limit. He said he's willing to have a separate discussion with leaders about the budget and spending priorities. But he said the threat of default must be removed from the table. He also said he would not rule out a short-term extension of the debt limit. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The White House. U.S. pandemic health rules expire tomorrow that allow border authorities to force out migrants coming into the country. The rules are generally known as Title 42. For months, governors in southern states have been sending migrants on buses to other northern cities, including to New York. Now, New York City Mayor Eric Adams says he will send migrants to other counties after they reach the city. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says she is calling up the National Guard. Well, we are in communication with the mayor's team and also helping him find locations within the city limits. Again, opening up state property and talking to other counties that are are interested in having people come. The governor says she is using over $1 billion of New York's budget to help the state address the migrants' needs. The Texas House of Representatives has voted to expel Republican lawmaker Brian Slayton. He is accused of having sex with a young legislative aide. The Texas newsroom Sergio Martinez Beltran has more. The full Texas House chamber sat in silence as members read the report that found Brian Slayton in violation of the House rules. State Representative Ann Johnson, a Democrat from Houston, said Slayton's actions left members with no other choice than to vote for expulsion. We are here because a 45-year-old member took advantage of and abused his power over his subordinate teenage staffer. A Texas House panel found that Slayton gave alcohol to his 19-year-old aide at his apartment. Afterwards, the report says he had sex with the staffer. Slayton is known for pushing for bills targeting members of the LGBTQ community. The 45-year-old is also married. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez-Beltran in Austin. A jury in New York has found former President Donald Trump liable for battery and defamation in the sexual abuse civil lawsuit brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. Trump is vowing to appeal. The jury did not find enough evidence to say Trump had raped Carroll. Trump has been ordered to pay her $5 million. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The state's highest court has awarded a Newton woman $37 million in a lawsuit against Philip Morris USA. That's the country's biggest cigarette manufacturer. The court unanimously agreed with Patricia Walsh-Green that the company intentionally misinformed the public about health risks. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports. Green started smoking at 13. That eventually led to brain cancer. She quit for a period of time, but then picked up filtered cigarettes because ads said they were safer. The SJC agreed those claims were bogus. Richard Daynard leads the Public Health Advocacy Institute at Northeastern University, which represented Green. I think the more the tobacco industry you know, actually has to pay these verdicts, uh, the you know, more careful they will be in not misrepresenting their product to the extent they still continue to do it. Uh, And maybe they'll get out of the business entirely. Philip Morris USA did not return our request for comment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer. Massachusetts migrant aid groups are bracing for an influx of people as federal pandemic-era immigration restrictions expire tonight. The groups say their resources are already stretched thin. The Boston Globe reports nearly 900 migrant families are currently being housed in dorms and hotels due to a lack of shelter space. On Beacon Hill, lawmakers are considering a bill that would allow tenants to seal some eviction records. WBUR's Steve Brown explains why. Among the records the so-called Holmes Act would seal include eviction cases where the tenant was not at fault. Another would be non-payment evictions where the tenant squares up with the landlord within two weeks. Co-sponsor Senator Lydia Edwards told the Judiciary Committee eviction records create an unnecessary stigma. It hurts their credit. It is used as a screening tool, unfairly and incompletely defining a person's ability to be a tenant for the rest of their life unnecessarily. A similar bill was passed by the legislature two years ago, but vetoed by Governor Baker. The Senate passed the bill again last session, but time ran out before the House could get to it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A Brighton man accused of conspiring with the Chinese government will remain in custody pending a court appearance tomorrow. Federal prosecutors say Li Tong Leong was compiling a list of Chinese activists in the U.S. who support pro-democracy dissidents in China. Leong is a U.S. citizen. He was arrested and charged yesterday with conspiracy to act as a foreign agent. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Celtics lost to the Sixers 115-103 to last night at the Garden. Boston trails the series three games to two. Game six will be tomorrow night. The Red Sox lost to Atlanta 9-3 to last night. The teams will play again tonight. Sunny today and in the 70s. Clear overnight. It'll drop into the 50s. Sunny tomorrow with a slight chance for afternoon showers. It'll be near 80. Right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Sunday is Mother's Day. Honor your mom, your wife, your sister, your daughter, or anyone else with Winston Flowers and send them from WBOR to strengthen our journalism. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% until midnight tonight at WBOR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. A jury has sided with E. Jean Carroll. She is the writer who accused former President Trump of sexual assault and defamation. The jury found the leading Republican presidential candidate liable for sexual abuse and found he should pay $5 million. Trump says he will appeal even as he continues his bid to reclaim the White House. NPR's Andrea Bernstein covered the case, and she is with us now. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning. So for people who missed it, could you describe how all this happened yesterday and what the jury said? It happened very quickly, in under three hours. Carol had sued under New York's new Adult Survivors Act, saying Trump had thrown her against the wall in a department store dressing room in the 1990s and sexually assaulted her. Under that law, Carol had to prove it was more likely than not that Trump raped her or sexually abused or forcibly touched her. And the jury did not find rape, but it did find sexual abuse. And it found that when Carol went public decades later and Trump said she is not my type and called her a liar, he defamed her. How did Trump respond? I take it he's still insisting that he doesn't know her or didn't know her. Right. He says he didn't know her and that he will appeal. That is the difficulty here. A jury ruled it was defamation to say Carol was a liar, but Trump will likely appeal by saying her story isn't true. Here's his lawyer, Joe Tecapine, outside of court yesterday. Obviously, you know, he's affirming his belief, as many people are, that he cannot get a fair trial in New York City um, based on the jury pool. And um, I think one could argue that that's probably a, an accurate assessment um, based on what happened today. And what was E. Jean Carroll's reaction? She left the courthouse without commenting, arm in arm with her lawyer, as women yelled, thank you, E. Jean. Later, she issued a statement saying, today the world finally knows the truth. This victory is not just for me, but for every woman who has suffered because she was not believed. And her trial was in some sense a verdict, not just for her, but for those who were outraged when Trump was caught on tape boasting he liked to grab women by the genitals. That Access Hollywood tape figured large in the trial. Eugene Carroll's lawyer, Mike Ferrara, had said during closing statements it was a confession. And the jury apparently agreed. So Trump is now going to have to navigate a presidential campaign and continue his legal fights. And I do want to mention that's not the only one. So tell us about what else he is facing. So as president, Trump was impeached twice, though he was acquitted both times. His company has been convicted for multiple counts of felony fraud. He himself has been indicted for allegedly falsifying business records in New York. And he is also being sued by the New York Attorney General for $250 million for a separate massive alleged fraud scheme. And then there are at least two more active criminal investigations, one in Georgia and special counsel Jack Smith's investigation. Trump has denied wrongdoing in all of this. As quickly as you can, how might that play out during a presidential campaign? The next trial in New York is scheduled for October, which is prime Republican debating season usually. That's the civil fraud case. The hush money criminal case is targeted to start in February or March, the middle of primary season. We don't know if there'll be further indictments, a lot of legal action to schedule around. That'll be a stress test for the rule of law. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Andrea, thank you. Thank you. 
Supporters of Imran Khan are planning to march on Pakistan's capital to demand the former prime minister's release. He is in the custody of the security forces after a chaotic day in Islamabad. The ousted prime minister is campaigning to get his job back, but he faces many corruption cases, and he was in court on one charge yesterday when paramilitary forces arrested him to face charges in a different case. And now he faces hearings on both. The arrest of a politician who is seeking office again triggered protests across the country. NPR international correspondent Dia Hadid lives in Islamabad and has been following all this and is with us now. Dia, hello. Hi there. So what's happening today? Well, today it's fairly quiet. People are staying home, schools are closed, embassies are closed, the streets are clear. But there's a lot of action around a police compound on Islamabad's outskirts. And that's where the former prime minister attended a hastily arranged hearing of an anti-corruption court. He was arrested, as Steve noted, on that court's orders in a case surrounding money allegedly funneled to a powerful building tycoon. Now, Khan says the case is politically motivated. It's to stop him from running in elections. So the court case is being held in a police compound. I mean, that seems unusual, is it? Is that that for security to keep people out? It's highly unusual, and it's certainly to keep people out. Police even use shipping containers to block the road leading to the compound. And outside, we met a member of uh, Khan's party known as PTI. Now, the name of the member we met is Shah Mahmood Qureshi, and we and other members of the press surrounded him. Can PTI still go to elections without Imran Khan running? Imran Khan is ruling the hearts of the people of Pakistan. Imran Khan, whether in jail or out of jail, will haunt them. Imran Khan is unstoppable. Okay, so he's saying Imran Khan will haunt them. Tell me, tell, uh, help us understand what he's saying. Do you think he was caught up in the drama, or is there more to it? I mean, that this suggests there's something, something about deeper tensions in Pakistan. Right. I mean, certainly politics in Pakistan, like politics in most places, has an element of theatre. But I do think there is something deeper going on here. One of Imran Khan's lawyers, Baba Awan, went as far as to tell us that he believed the country is under undeclared martial law. And his reference there to the military is important because for many of Khan's followers, this is now a showdown between their leader and the army. That is Pakistan's most powerful institution. It's always been widely revered and feared. But now people say something feels different. Different how? Well, consider what happened yesterday. After Khan's arrest by a paramilitary force known as the Rangers, his followers rioted outside army installations. They set fire to a commander's home. They broke open the gates leading to the country's military headquarters. They were led by a middle-aged woman in a headscarf. No one can recall anything like this happening in Pakistan before. And Khan's followers are largely middle class. Like Ruhi, she's 38. We met outside the police compound and she tells me she grew up worshipping the army. But now she says their treatment of Imran Khan has turned her against the institution. And now she accuses them of destabilising the country. She even put her hand to her neck like, we've had it up to here with them. That is NPR's Dia Hadid. Dia, thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Now, the turmoil in Pakistan strikes one of the world's most populous countries, a nuclear-armed nation that is also a strategic partner of the United States. So we've been talking about it with diplomats at the U.S. State Department. Derek Cholet is the counselor to Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He is a regular visitor to Pakistan. And as we spoke last week, 
Former Prime Minister Imran Khan was not yet in custody, but Sholay knew of the court cases against him as the coalition government moves toward elections this fall. What attitude, if any, is the United States taking toward that process? We obviously want to see the elections happen on time. We want them to be free and fair. We do not take a position on uh, who will lead Pakistan. Of course, we want to ensure that we have a, a stable relationship. And our message to Pakistan during this period of tremendous turmoil and challenge that they're facing on so many different fronts is we want to be there as a partner. I want to follow up on something you said. There is talk in Pakistan of delaying these elections past the fall when, according to law, it appears they should right. take place. Right. The United States is saying, you're telling me, hold the elections on time. We believe the elections should be held and they need to be free and fair. Even if the result is Imran Khan returns to power. Again, we don't pass judgment on who's going to lead Pakistan. We'll look forward to working with whoever's in power there. Imran Khan, as you know very well, has espoused theories and ideas that the United States pushed him out of power and perhaps would have some influence in keeping him out of power or allowing him back in. What influence has the United States exercised, if any? Uh, the statements about uh, any U.S. role uh, in Pakistan's politics are completely false. They're preposterous. They're frankly a distraction from the important work that we have to do to help Pakistan economically and help it deal with its tremendous economic challenges, to help it on security. Uh, but then also to help us realize the tremendous potential we believe we have in this relationship. The United States remains Pakistan's largest trading partner. There are many Pakistani Americans who are vibrant parts of the United States, but also do important work back in Pakistan. Many U.S. companies uh, employ thousands and thousands of Pakistanis. We see that there is potential in the relationship despite the tremendous challenges we have to work on together. Because of those trading relationships and because of the security relationship between the United States and Pakistan, isn't it true, though, that the U.S. does have a lot of influence there, even if you're not giving orders to anybody? Look, we certainly have some influence, and we try to use that influence as good partners to encourage uh, the Pakistani government to, to make the right decisions and to give them support to make those decisions. But, of, of course, we don't have... Uh, infinite amount of influence and connect control events in Pakistan and don't seek to control events in Pakistan. Do you talk a lot about issues of democracy with the military, which has tremendous influence there? A absolutely, we do. And in the several trips I've made to Pakistan in the last nine months, I've had an opportunity to see the chief of staff of the military. And we've talked about the importance of the military staying out of politics and the importance of uh, the strength of democracy inside Pakistan. Is this a dangerous moment for that country? People that I have greatly respect who followed Pakistan for many years say that it is as perilous as they have seen it. Given the profound economic challenges they're facing, given the natural disasters that they have suffered from, given the uh, rising threat of terrorism that seems to be returning, and the ongoing political turmoil, this is a critical moment for Pakistan. It's why the United States is working very hard uh, with our colleagues inside Pakistan as well, as well as other uh, partners to do what we can to help Pakistan get through this very challenging moment. Councillor, thanks so much. Thanks. Great being here. Derek Cholet, top advisor to Secretary of State Antony Blinken, speaking late last week. A State Department spokesperson told NPR last evening the U.S. is aware of Imran Khan's arrest. The department is urging all protesters to express their grievances peacefully and for authorities to respond with restraint. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in four minutes on Morning Edition, one of the nation's largest military bases has dropped the name of a Confederate general and is now named in honor of the Army's first Latino four-star general. It's 719.
WBUR supporters include the Jack and Beulah Bressler Tzedakah Fund, marking the centennial of the birth of Dr. Jack B. Bressler by supporting the School of the Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts University. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When I was a kid growing up in England, my mother's favorite BBC radio station broadcast a radio play every afternoon. My brother and I would usually get home from school a few minutes before the play was about to end. We knew better than to say a word. We'd slide into our usual seats at the kitchen table. Mom would put the kettle on, cut us each a slice of homemade cake. Then we would sit in silence until the play ended and my mother returned from whatever cozy farmhouse, smuggler's den, foreign paradise or planet she had been transported to. I get my love of radio and its ability to transport us anywhere from her. Thanks, Mom. If you're looking for a meaningful way to say thanks to your mum on Mother's Day and support great storytelling at the same time, consider Winston Flowers from WBUR. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Sunny's day with a high of 72. Tonight, mostly clear, and it falls to a low around 54. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. A U.S. Army post in Texas, once known as Fort Hood, is not called that anymore. The Army dropped the name of a Confederate general who lost several big battles as his side lost the Civil War. So the fort is now called Fort Cavazos in honor of General Richard Cavazos, who served on that base and who was the first Latino to be promoted to four-star general, with very rare exceptions that is the highest rank in the Army. Carson Frame of Texas Public Radio reports. The Army goes rolling along. The song captures the service's past, present, and future. It was a fitting tribute at the renaming ceremony honoring General Cavazos, the highly decorated Hispanic Army veteran of Korea and Vietnam, who was commander of the base from 1980 to 1982. Sean Bernabe leads Fort Cavazos today. General Cavazos was described by many as a soldier's soldier who earned admiration, loyalty, and respect. Through his warrior ethos, through his selflessness, through his genuine empathy, and through his unquestionable love for soldiers. The change at one of the country's largest military installations is part of an effort to confront racial injustice and inequality. Fort Cavazos was originally named for Confederate General John Bell Hood. Lawrence Roma was part of the commission to rename military bases. He says he hopes the name change will usher in a new era. Would you look at Cavazos? The epitome of a soldier-soldier, that's going to help the culture because you're going to have a positive role model uh, instead of some traitor 
who uh, didn't care for the United States of America. The Army is also looking to make the post more unified and safe. The Central Texas Army base was the target of intense scrutiny after Vanessa Guillen, a Latina soldier, was killed on base in 2020. An Army review found base leaders fostered an environment that allowed sexual assault, harassment, and violence to go unchecked. Lisa Carrington Furman is a retired Air Force colonel and part of the Hispanic Veterans Leadership Alliance. Renaming the base, this is a great thing, uh, especially to honor a Hispanic individual who contributes so much to his country. But it doesn't change the fact that, that, that Fort Hood really needs to transform. And she hopes the new name is a start. Base leaders in the Army are changing how they handle sex crimes and other criminal investigations. They've also tried to encourage leaders to better care for their soldiers. For NPR News, I'm Carson Frame in San Antonio. In Sudan, two generals are vying for power, causing chaos and raising fears of another civil war. This East African nation has endured internal conflicts throughout much of its history. NPR's Greg Mari looks at why Sudan has been plagued by so much turmoil. The world has gained a new nation, and the new flag is hoisted. Blue for the Nile, yellow for the desert, green for agriculture. Sudan became Africa's largest nation when it won independence on New Year's Day, 1956. But that massive size also presented problems. It's huge. If you take a Sudan, you look at other large countries throughout the world, not just in Africa, they are almost always very difficult to govern. Susan D. Page is a former U.S. diplomat who spent years working in the country. She's one of three former negotiators who spoke to NPR about the challenges of establishing a peaceful, stable Sudan. Countries could be divided by language, by religion, by family. But when people are very different, one from another, farmers, herders, nomadic, etc., it's always going to be quite difficult to rule. Sudan has multiple fault lines. Arab Muslims in the north have traditionally dominated the country, alienating Christians and other groups in the south and the west. There are a range of ethnic and tribal differences. These fractures have contributed to three civil wars that have spanned well over 40 of Sudan's 67 years of independence. Page helped negotiate the end of one war and later became the first U.S. ambassador to South Sudan when it broke away from Sudan in 2011. She's now worried about two feuding generals battling for control. I think we have a notion that, well, powerful countries can sort of wave a magic wand and get people to stop doing what they're doing. I mean, that is what diplomacy is about. But it's very difficult once the big guns literally have come out. The previous conflicts, waged in the remote southern and western parts of Sudan, were disasters for one of the world's poorest nations. Yet the current fighting could potentially be even more devastating. It's playing out in and around the capital Khartoum, the most developed part of Sudan. Peyton Kanoff was a U.S. envoy to the Horn of Africa until last year. What we're essentially seeing is the deterioration uh, of the Sudanese state uh, itself, uh, with consequences, again, first and foremost for the Sudanese people. Yet there's no easy solution. Kanoff says previous peace deals kept military figures in positions of power, which created conditions that then led to future conflicts. It's sort of like saying you're going to put the foxes back in charge of the hen house uh, after the foxes have bombed the hen house and, and killed a lot of the hens. 
the two warring generals currently at odds have shown no signs of ceding power. Alex DeWall at Tufts University is an expert on Sudan. He was called to the country in 2005 in what proved to be a failed attempt to negotiate an end to fighting in the Darfur region. That experience taught DeWall how hard it is to end conflict in Sudan. Quite a few times I've been meeting with Sudanese generals, and they have this mindset when they go to war, which is, we will land a knockout killer blow on the other guy. We can win a decisive victory. And don't stop us. And they're always wrong. As a result, Sudan's wars have been painfully long, all lasting more than a decade. I recall from so many meetings that glazed look in their eyes when they had resigned themselves pretending they had no agency and that war was inevitable. Getting them out of that mindset to recognize, yes, they started it, and yes, they can stop it, is the challenge of the mediator. The rival Sudanese factions are talking to mediators now in Saudi Arabia, but there's been no breakthrough. Greg Myrie, NPR News. This is NPR News. Welcome to Wednesday. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, WBUR political reporter Anthony Brooks speaks to New Hampshire residents who are bracing for a visit today by former President Donald Trump. It's 729. Check out Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. It explores America's opaque parole system through a decades-old murder case. Find Violation wherever you get your podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local, sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. There are protests in Pakistan following the arrest of the country's former prime minister, Imran Khan. He was taken into custody yesterday as he appeared in court in Islamabad on corruption charges. His arrest triggered demonstrations and clashes with members of Pakistan's military in cities such as Quetta and Lahore. Some protesters have been arrested. A number of deaths and injuries are reported. Shah Mahmood Qureshi is senior vice president of Khan's political party. I've asked them, keep it peaceful, do not get into people's houses, do not destroy public or private property, but peaceful protest is our right. Khan appeared in court again today where he was indicted for unlawfully selling state gifts while he was prime minister. The Senate Commerce Committee is expected to vote today on a bill designed to bolster rail safety in the U.S., NPR's David Shaper says the legislation was prompted by February's freight train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. The Senate legislation would increase maximum civil penalties for rail safety violations from $100,000 to $10 million. The bill would also mandate more thorough rail car inspections, better technology to detect equipment failures, two-person train crews, and stronger regulations on trains carrying hazardous materials. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBNR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
The COVID-19 state of emergency ends tomorrow in Massachusetts and nationwide. It'll mean the end of masking requirements. And as WBUR's Laney Ruxtell reports, it also means the state will divert some resources away from fighting the virus. Masks will no longer be required in most settings, including hospitals. And the state's largest health insurers say they will stop providing free at-home tests. Boston University public health professor Dr. David Hamer says he thinks this is the right time to end the emergency. We've sort of reached the end of the pandemic and we're, we're now more in an endemic state for the time being. But the real question is, will there be another wave? Hamer says residents should stay vigilant and be prepared should another variant or wave of infections arise. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. Eligible students in Massachusetts could soon receive in-state tuition at public colleges and universities here, regardless of immigration status. The proposal is part of the budget released by Senate lawmakers this week. Governor Healy calls the measure both fair and necessary to ease labor shortages in the region. You know, Massachusetts is not unique. Other states are dealing with real workforce challenges. So the the more people we can get into a workforce pipeline, the better for us. Students could qualify for in-state tuition if they attended at least some high school in the state and graduated or obtained a GED. The Senate budget proposal also includes plans to make two years of community college free for students. The mayor of Quincy is running for a seventh term. Thomas Koch is the city's longest-serving mayor. He's been in office since 2007. He tells the Patriot Ledger he feels like he has more to do. So far, no other candidates have declared a run for the seat. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. The Celtics are on the brink of elimination. They lost to the Sixers 115-103 to last night at the Garden. Boston now trails in the best-of-seven series, three games to two. A must-win game six will be tomorrow night in Philadelphia. The Red Sox lost to Atlanta 9-3 to last night on the road. The teams will wrap up their short series tonight. Clear skies with highs in the low 70s today. It stays clear tonight and falls to the mid-50s tomorrow near 80 under sunny skies. There's a slight chance we may see some rain in the afternoon. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston at 734. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From CFP, Certified financial planner professionals committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Former President Donald Trump will be in New Hampshire this evening to take questions from voters in a town hall sponsored by CNN. The event has sparked controversy with many Democrats, student groups, and media watchers. They're criticizing CNN for giving a platform to Trump, who has a long record of trafficking in lies. And that was before he was found liable yesterday for battery and defamation. WBUR's Anthony Brooks has our story. 
Tonight's town hall meeting represents a reunion between Trump, who's been limiting his appearances to conservative news outlets, and CNN, which stopped airing Trump events some time ago. David Zasloff, the new CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, which owns CNN, recently told MSNBC that conservatives, including Trump, should be on CNN. Yeah, he should be. We need to hear both voices. That's what you see. Republicans are on the air on right. CNN. Democrats are on the MSNBC. All voices should be heard on David, CNN. Suddenly MSNBC. Way, I think it's important I, for I America. So I think it's a very admirable... Trump will take questions from New Hampshire Republicans and independents who say they'll be voting in the Republican primary. According to numerous polls, Trump is the front runner for the GOP nomination, and the New Hampshire primary is a key step in his bid to return to the White House. But tonight he'll be talking to voters the day after a New York jury found him responsible for sexual assault and defamation of E. Jean Carroll. And a host of critics decry CNN's decision to carry the Trump event, saying, here we go again. You would hope that we would have figured this out by now, and yet there are indications that we're going to kind of go down the same road again. David Kurtz is executive editor and Washington bureau chief of Talking Points Memo. He says CNN shouldn't repeat the mistakes of 2016 by handing this platform to Trump, who has a long record of lying and spreading dangerous misinformation. Kurtz points out that Trump has been indicted and faces investigations on multiple fronts. And he led a coup to try to overturn the results of the last election, and now he's running again. So the old sort of journalistic tropes and formats didn't work the first time. They work even less this time. We know what happens when a major news network gives Donald Trump free airtime and an unfettered platform. What he does with it is he spews lies and hate. Shauna Thomas is co-founder and executive director of Ultraviolet, a women's rights advocacy organization. It ended in an insurrection attempt. You know, he effectively tried to destroy American democracy. Ultraviolet has sponsored a petition demanding that CNN cancel the event. And more than a thousand people have signed a petition organized by students at St. Anselm College, which is hosting the town hall to shut it down. In a statement, St. Anselm acknowledges that Trump is an election denier who faces multiple legal challenges. But here's Paul Proveno, chief spokesman at the college. At the same time, what also is true is that he is a frontrunner for the Republican Party, and he's the former president of the United States. So we feel it's our responsibility to remain true to our ideals, to bring major political candidates to campus to be heard and to help vet them for the nation. But the critics aren't advocating not covering Trump. They're saying don't cover him this way in a town hall that makes it difficult to push back against lies and misinformation. Again, David Kurtz of Talking Points Memo. You could do it as an interview. You could do it in any number of other ways that would give you more control and more editorial discretion over the misinformation that Trump is likely to spew. I think that's where you get into the real question of, is this the right way to handle covering Trump, given what we've experienced over the last six years? CNN says tonight's event is part of a long tradition of hosting presidential town halls. It will be moderated by anchor Caitlin Collins. Her challenge, to push back in real time against Trump, which has never been easy for anyone, or risk providing a megaphone for any false claims. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Kate Bear wrote her first book in a booth at her local Panera restaurant. With four kids at home, she didn't have a quiet space of her own to write. That first book, called What Kind of Woman, went on to become a New York Times bestseller. 
Her next two books of poetry did too. In this commentary for WBUR ahead of Mother's Day, Bear reflects on her life as an author and a mom. In second grade, I used to write lots of poems and essays about my cats, dead and alive. I recently found those and started looking through them. And my mom always told me I was a writer, but I didn't realize it until I found it 25 years later. After I got married, I applied to the MFA of my choice and my husband was headed to medical school. I saw us each pursuing our careers, and then I got pregnant. We decided together that I would stay home and he would go to medical school. I'd always wanted to be a mother. I had no idea what it was going to take from me to be a mother. My husband was scheduled for a vasectomy, and two weeks before, I found out I was pregnant with my fourth. I'll never forget that moment. I was immediately devastated because already having three children, I knew the cost of what was to come. I knew the cost on my career. I knew the cost on my body and my mind. So now I have this decision to make. Am I going to drown, lose my life, or am I going to completely change everything? And it was because of him, and I credit him all the time, that that last baby, it was because of him that I, I had to change my life. And that came with childcare, that came with saying to myself, I can't be a stay-at-home mom, I can't stay with him anymore, I can't be a mom to another baby full-time. It'll, it'll kill me. I never in my wildest dreams would have thought when I'm 33 I'm going to become a poet. I really found my voice in poetry. I love the boiled down storytelling. I love everything about it. Commencement address. When I take my evening walk, I unlock rooms I never meant to close, which is one way to write a book. Another is to peel an orange or take a shower or fall in love with someone dangerous. At any given moment, there is someone getting what they always wanted. I know no quicker way to ruin a day than to dwell on this. Commencement address was written when we lived in town. And we took a walk every night um, up to the playground or up to, we called it the smooth driveway, which is the school's parking lot. And the kids rode their bikes. And then in COVID, we called it our COVID walk. I'm not a morning person. I don't write in the morning, but I am alive at night. And those evening walks are so integral to letting my mind quiet down enough to hear what's really being said. Usually when I'm walking in the evening, I'm with my dog who needs to get out her energy. Come on, come on. I'm walking from my yard to the field where I walk with my dog. We live in the country now, so I walk in this backfield and so she just gets to run free off leash what are you chewing on oh gross okay come on come on let's go let's go when I unclip her from that leash and she runs off through the field every day is the best day of her life because she's doing what she's meant to do and it always fills me with this sense of joy but when I'm on stage and meeting people I feel that same way This is what I was always meant to do and feel and be. This is what it means to feel known. And I think that's a very universal desire. 
to be known exactly as you are and have that be enough. I was walking through icy streams that took my breath away. Moving slowly. Kate Bear's latest book of poetry is called And Yet. You can see her in conversation tonight at WBUR City Space. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. This piece was produced by Chloe Axelson with help from Sarah Shukla. Sunday is Mother's Day. Honor your mom, your wife, your sister, your daughter, or anyone else with Winston Flowers and send them from WBUR to strengthen our journalism. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% until midnight tonight at wbur.org. It's 744. Low 70s and clear skies today, it's 51 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com and Fresh Food Generation Restaurant, providing drop-off corporate and community catering of farm-to-plate Caribbean American fare. FreshFoodGeneration.com Cambridge-based Akamai is among the local tech companies that have laid off workers this year. The company cut nearly 300 positions worldwide. That accounts for around 3 percent of its workforce. Akamai did not say how many of those workers were located here in the Boston area. Waltham-based life sciences company Perkin Elmer is splitting in two, and it's gone public with the name of its spin-off company. Revity will be the side of the business that deals with products and software sold to labs. The other side will keep the name Perkin Elmer. It's 745. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Falling gasoline and grocery prices helped to bring down inflation in March. So what happens now as we learn the inflation numbers for April? NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What do analysts expect to learn today? Well, they think the annual inflation rate in April was somewhere around 5%. Uh, That is, of course, a big improvement from last June when inflation topped out just over 9%. Yeah. It would be about the same as the rate we saw in March. Uh, In fact, April's rate could be a little bit higher than the March number. A big driver of inflation in recent months has been housing costs, uh, and forecasters do expect housing inflation to ease over time as newer rental prices make their way into the government's data. But Omer Sharif, who heads the forecasting firm Inflation Insight, says there was actually a pretty big decline in housing inflation in March, and he thinks we could be due for a rebound in the April number. My feeling is that there is a very gradual slowdown here that you can kind of, you know, if you squint, you can see it. But March seemed a little too good to be true. Energy prices also jumped a little bit last month. And used car prices may have done a U-turn as well. They've been coming down, but there is a lot of demand for used cars right now. Dealers had to pay premium prices at wholesale auctions this winter to get cars on their lots. And that could show up in the April sticker price as well. What kind of bottom line does this give us then about the direction of inflation? You know, these April numbers may not tell us a whole lot. Uh, some of these numbers bounce up and down from month to month. And Sharif sure. thinks if you screen out that monthly noise, inflation still seems to be headed lower. I think once you look through some of these details, I think you actually ought to be feeling better about where things are headed on inflation over the next you know, three to six months. 
the inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve have been keeping a close eye on the price of services other than housing, uh, things like restaurant meals and car repair. Those prices tend to be a little stickier, so that's something we'll be watching for today. I'm glad you brought up the Federal Reserve. We'll state the obvious here. The Fed wants to control inflation. That's one of their mandates. They've been raising interest rates again and again and again to try to do that. So given this information, where do they go from here? Good question. Last week, the Fed raised its benchmark interest rates for the 10th time in 14 months. That's the most aggressive series of rate hikes since the 1980s. Policymakers hinted, though, that could be the last rate hike for a while, but the central bank is not making any promises. John Williams heads the New York Federal Reserve Bank, and yesterday he told the Economic Club of New York that there's still just a lot of uncertainty about the economy right now, so the Fed wants to keep its options open. There's just a lot of churn, if you will, going on in supply and demand. And so it's not a business as usual macroeconomy right now. Adding to that uncertainty is the situation in the banking sector. We've had three bank failures since March. That means other banks are getting more cautious about making loans, and that could be a drag on the economy as it raises the risk of a recession. Risk of a recession, even though the job market is still really strong. Yeah, unemployment's just 3.4 percent, tied with a half-century low. Uh, Employers added more than a quarter million jobs last month. Wage growth picked up a little bit uh, last month, and the Fed's worried that rising wages could put upward pressure on prices. Uh, But last week, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said he doesn't think wages are the principal driver of inflation, and Sharif agrees. Wages are definitely pushing up inflation. And in fact, a lot of people would argue inflation is pushing up wages. But there's a lot of other elements that probably are playing a bigger role. So we'll get some clues about those other inflationary elements today. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. Airlines say this year's summer vacation season could be their busiest ever. But after last season's flight delays and cancellations, the Biden administration is trying to require airlines to cover the costs that passengers incur during delays and cancellations. So will this year be better than last? NPR's David Shaper has been looking into it. 2022 certainly wasn't the best year for air travel. In fact, it may have been one of the worst. Things were as bad as they've been in 25 years or more. Andre Delatra is with the Public Interest Research Group, which analyzed traveler complaints filed with the U.S. Department of Transportation. He says the numbers skyrocketed last year as airlines struggled getting people to where they wanted to go. There were five times more complaints in 2022 compared to 2019 before the pandemic even though fewer people were flying. Latre says airlines delayed and canceled a staggering number of flights. 190,000 flights canceled last year. And other than the early months of the pandemic, that's more canceled flights than any year since 2001, when, of course, 9-11 disrupted air travel. A General Accountability Office investigation finds that staffing shortages, maintenance problems, and other factors within the airline's control are largely to blame for the sharp increase in flight disruptions. Now, most airlines handled the recent surge in spring break travelers relatively well, and they say they're much better prepared for this summer than last. But some in the industry aren't so sure. This summer's travel demand will be as strong as we've seen since before the pandemic and potentially the strongest ever. Jeff Freeman heads the U.S. Travel Association, which represents airlines, hotels, and other travel-related businesses. That type of demand in a system that is woefully underfunded and understaffed is likely to create substantial frustrations among travelers. 
Friedman puts the blame not on the airlines, but on Congress and the federal government. Air traffic control staffing shortages in the Northeast led the FAA to ask airlines to reduce the number of flights this summer into and out of New York area airports. The FAA is also struggling to upgrade outdated technology after an outage caused a temporary halt of all departures nationwide in January. And Freeman says extremely long wait times to get through customs are hurting the recovery in international travel. These problems didn't come out of thin air. These problems have come out of years and years of underinvestment. Many airlines are flying bigger planes with more seats to meet the increased demand while cutting their overall number of flights, especially regional service, to smaller airports. Another challenge for airlines is that airplane manufacturers, such as Boeing, are way behind in delivering new aircraft because of supply chain and production problems. And some airlines face yet another problem with their labor unions. The pilots at American Airlines are ready to strike. Dennis Tager is spokesman for Americans Pilots Union, which voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike if they cannot reach a deal. While walking a picket line at Chicago's O'Hare Airport, Tager says the key sticking point isn't overpay, but American scheduling practices that he says stretches pilots too thin. I don't know what's going to happen this summer. That's why we're out here. There's so much uncertainty, it's even shaken us to our core. Pilots at Southwest are voting on whether to authorize a strike too, and unions for employees at those and other airlines are also in tense negotiations. If there's any silver lining for air travelers, it's that air fares, which had been soaring, are starting to level off and even drop, especially for flights next fall after the summer travel rush is over. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, we hear from the leader of the humanitarian group that's trying to get help to people affected by flooding in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's 7.53. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with The Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At UMA.com NPR. I'm Lisa Mullins, host of WBUR's All Things Considered. If you grew up listening to public radio from the back seat of your mom's car, maybe now's the time to thank her. Send her gorgeous Winston flowers and send them from WBUR to support what's become your favorite station. We can deliver the flowers almost anywhere in eastern Massachusetts. Save 10% until midnight tonight. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Former President Donald Trump says he'll appeal yesterday's decision by a jury that found him liable for battery and defamation of writer E. Jean Carroll. 
President Biden is considering using the 14th Amendment as a way to solve the debt ceiling debate. And in Massachusetts, health officials are defending their decision to end mask mandates at health care facilities tomorrow as the state's COVID public health emergency also ends. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, working with New England artisans dedicated to using sustainable materials to craft furniture that lasts. Locations at circlefurniture.com. Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view. ICABoston.org. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. We'll have sunny skies and temperatures in the low 70s today. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston at 755. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Rescue workers are digging through wreckage and mud in search of the dead in a remote part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Flooding last week has killed at least 400 people, but many thousands are still missing. So that number is sure to rise. The waters triggered mudslides that wiped out homes, crops, and livestock. For an update on the situation, I'm joined by Jean-Claude Nzai. He's with the humanitarian organization Chorus International. He's based in Goma, which is about 80 miles from where the worst flooding took place. Hello, sir. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Michelle. Thank you for having me on air. The reports say that whole neighborhoods were wiped out. What are you hearing now from the villages that were affected? Uh, More than 3,000 houses have been affected and more than 1,200 houses completely destroyed. Community members are still searching for their beloved ones in the rubble. As the search continue, as of yesterday, um, 415 people were confirmed dead and buried um, with the support from the local government. And the search continues at all the level in the community affected by uh, the mudslide. Are are there any medical facilities or other facilities to treat people who are injured if if they can be rescued? Uh, Currently, um, Kumbi and uh, Bushushu uh, health centers have been directly affected. And the general hospital, I mean, plus the general hospital that have hosted thousands of wounded people, but currently they are facing issues related to um, pharmaceuticals and other important medicines. And as we're talking with some of the local folks on the ground this morning, the need is still growing in terms of uh, medical support. So we still assessing uh, the situation on the ground with the support from the government to see how like humanitarian organizations and others might come in, jump in and support those affected by the um, mudslide. Do you have any sense of whether the government is a presence there yet at, at all or or, for example, non-governmental organizations like yours? I understand that you are getting some reports, but really, is there any real presence there yet? <laughs> Currently, we have a confirmation of the um, South Kivu government and the national government representatives who have been in uh, Kalehe provided some non-food items, and we don't have the details yet. Okay, Mr. Nzai, before we let you go, there's been flooding in both Rwanda and Uganda in recent days, too. I understand that more than 100 people died in Rwanda. How common is this at this time of year in Central Africa where you are, uh, or, or is this unusual? 
Yes, uh, this situation like currently is unusual. We are tempted to think that this is linked more likely to uh, climate change issues. As of yesterday, we were still counting around 100 people dead. So this situation is seemingly in- increasing as we're still in the, the rainy season. And with the rivers here and there being overflowed, uh, we are pretty sure that this situation is now going to end soon enough. Hmm. Jean-Claude Nzaye, he's a program support specialist with the humanitarian organization Chorus International. Mr. Nzaye, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Michelle. Education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump has been ordered to pay $5 million in damages for sexually abusing a woman in a department store dressing room in the 90s. It's Wednesday, May 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up... We want to come out with a strong message that all women should really start screening at 40. A federal task force has issued new recommendations for when women should get screened for breast cancer. Also this hour, companies offer Massachusetts residents energy plans that promise to be 100% green, but those promises aren't always kept. The supply companies, they're not like literally bringing, you know, solar power to your home. But you wouldn't necessarily know that from the marketing materials. Plus, what the end of the COVID public health emergency means for Massachusetts. The Celtics teeter on the brink of elimination, sunny in the 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden travels to New York today to lay out his position in the fight over the debt ceiling. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, he's taking aim at a vulnerable House Republican lawmaker. Biden is visiting a Westchester County, New York congressional district Democrats carried in 2020. But in 2022, Republican Congressman Mike Lawler won. Biden's trip is part of an effort to put pressure on congressional Republicans to raise the debt ceiling. Biden met last night with the top four congressional leaders and will do do so again on Friday. I said I'd come back and talk. I just really, there's one thing I'm ruling out is default, and I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to pass a budget that in fact caused massive cuts. In New York, Biden is expected to say cuts Republicans are demanding would hurt teachers, veterans, and law enforcement. Lawler will be there and says the president needs to negotiate with Republicans. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The U.S. will lift the public health emergency measure known as Title 42 tomorrow. NPR's Vanessa Romo reports immigration officials are preparing for the unpredictable effects along the southern U.S. border. The Department of Homeland Security is trying to assuage fears of chaos breaking out at the country's ports of entry, saying plans to deal with the end of Title 42 have been in the works for more than a year. Senior administration officials say more than 24,000 additional Customs and Border Protection personnel, as well as 1,400 medical and support staff, are in place to process the influx of migrants who are seeking asylum. DHS says it's also retrained and is ready to deploy up to 1,000 asylum officers to handle credible fear interviews at the border. 
Starting on Thursday, the department will significantly expand the use of expedited removal for individuals who are detained between ports of entry. Vanessa Romo, NPR News. New York Republican Congressman George Sanders appear in court as soon as today. NPR's Giles Snyder tells us he is facing a criminal charge. Word of the charges against Congressman Santos were first reported by CNN, but their nature remains unclear. They remain under seal. However, NPR has confirmed that Santos is facing at least one charge in the Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn. Santos has admitted to lying about his life story, calling them harmless embellishments, and there are questions about his campaign spending. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. This morning, the government releases the latest monthly report on consumer prices. Forecasts suggest that in April, consumer prices rose at an annual rate of about 5 percent. That's lower from last summer's peak, but still difficult for consumers. Sirens are sounding across central Israel today. Officials in Israel say rockets were fired earlier today from Gaza towards southern Israel. This comes after the Israeli military used missile strikes against Palestinian targets in Gaza. This is NPR. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan has been indicted today on illegally selling state gifts. He was suddenly arrested yesterday as he appeared in a different courtroom to face corruption allegations. Khan's arrest has triggered outrage from his supporters. Many of them have protested on the streets. Voting is underway in a southern state in India. Sushmita Patak reports the results could forecast voters' sentiment ahead of next year's national elections. The party of Prime Minister Narendra Modi is fighting for a second term in the state of Karnataka. It is the only state in India's south that Modi's party has ever won. The state capital, Bengaluru, is often called India's Silicon Valley, but is routinely plagued by flooding and long traffic jams. But infrastructure development is not the only issue on the ballot. Last year, Karnataka was the epicenter of a Hindu nationalist debate over hijabs. After protests by Hindu groups, the Karnataka High Court banned Muslim girls and women from wearing religious headscarves in schools and colleges. More than 50 million eligible voters are expected to cast their ballot. Votes will be counted on Saturday. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Gurgaon, India. Authorities in Kenya say they have discovered 133 bodies of people linked to a religious sect. The leader of the sect allegedly ordered his followers to starve themselves and their children to death. Sect leader Paul McKenzie is under arrest. Hundreds of other people associated with the Kenyan religious sect are still believed to be missing. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. In Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts health officials are defending their decision to lift the statewide mask mandate for patients, visitors, and employees at health care facilities. The requirement ends tomorrow, the same day the state's COVID public health emergency ends. WBUR's Prinka Dale McCluskey reports the changes come as COVID infections and hospitalizations are near record lows. At a press conference, Massachusetts Public Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein stopped short of saying the pandemic is over, but he said the state has come a long way. We are, after years of hard work, in a better place. Some public health advocates say removing masks in hospitals and doctor's offices will be harmful to patients. Goldstein doesn't agree. The risk is extremely low and bringing the mask mandate down is following the science and the data that are available. Massachusetts is the last state to end the mask mandate for healthcare facilities. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Priyanka Thayal McCluskey. Massachusetts groups that work with immigrants are preparing for the end of Title 42 tomorrow. That's a pandemic-era federal policy that restricted U.S. southern border access on public health grounds. Elizabeth Sweet is the director of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. She says she isn't sure how the end of Title 42 will impact the state yet. Mira and our many partners on the ground are going to be really closely monitoring to see what the situation looks like. But for now, we are continuing to be prepared to welcome new immigrants to Massachusetts. The state has seen a significant increase in migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers in recent months. The state has placed some families in hotels. Others have sought shelter in hospitals. The Massachusetts Senate's new budget does not include legalizing online lottery sales. That was included in the House budget and is supported by Governor Healy. Supporters say the move will help the lottery compete with online sports betting. But opponents say lottery revenue hasn't been affected by sports betting. Harvard and Boston University will get nearly $7 million to build a new research center focused on the health impacts of climate change. The three-year grant is from the National Institutes of Health. Greg Willenius is the director of the BU Center for Climate and Health. He says the new center will help address the knowledge gap between researchers and the people they hope to help. The solution is to bring people together in novel ways so that we can have a freer exchange of ideas, more visibility for the solutions that are already available, and uh, uh, accelerate the, the pace of research and translation in this space. The center aims to bring together climate change and health experts from around the world for its first conference next winter. It's 808. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. The Celtics lost Game 5 of their playoff series with the Sixers last night. The final at the Garden was 115-103. to A must-win Game 6 will be tomorrow night in Philadelphia. The Red Sox fell to Atlanta 9-3 to last night. The teams will play again tonight. The Patriots will play in Germany. This fall, they'll be the home team in Frankfurt for the November 12th game against the Colts. It'll be the fourth time the Pats have played a regular season game outside of the U.S. Sunny today and in the 70s. Clear overnight, it'll drop into the 50s. Sunny tomorrow with a slight chance for afternoon showers. It'll be near 80. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Sunday is Mother's Day. Honor your mom, your wife, your sister, your daughter, or anyone else with Winston Flowers and send them from WBUR to strengthen our journalism. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% until midnight tonight at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Former President Trump never testified at the trial where he was found liable for sexual abuse and defamation. But one day after that verdict, he turns up on live television. CNN holds a town hall meeting tonight. Trump faces questions before an audience with host Caitlin Collins. During Trump's presidential years, he made attacks on CNN, part of his business model, and Collins was a CNN White House correspondent who asked him hard questions. Now the network is different, 
and Trump is no longer president, so how will this event go? NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick is on the line. David, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Why would Trump return to mainstream media now? And particularly CNN, right? He called it the enemy of people, fake news. Well, you know, recently he's been pumping for this event. He posted on Truth Social, the social media site, quote, could be the beginning of a new and vibrant CNN with no more fake news, or it could turn into a disaster for all, including me. Mm. I think part of it is, you know, he's starting up, gearing up for his run for the presidency for next year. And he's clearly upset with Fox News, a home for a lot of his uh, most ardent supporters, even though he's given interviews to Sean Hannity and former uh, Fox host Tucker Carlson on that network in recent weeks. He's upset with it because the Murdochs that control that network have been auditioning Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as the possible uh, lead candidate for Republicans. Trump knows uh, Collins from the White House. Uh, You know, I think he says he's going to be independent from, from Fox in certain ways. I feel like we're setting up a pro wrestling match here. You've got all these dramatic plot lines, and there's a plot line involving Trump and Fox. There's also a plot line involving CNN and its changes. Yeah, right. Under uh, uh, Chris Licht, appointed as chairman of CNN early last year, CNN and its parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, has been trying to say it's a new day at CNN. They've removed some of its programs that had some of the fiercest criticism of Trump. Think Don Lemon being moved to the morning shows and finally being fired for unrelated issues. Brian Stelter's media criticism show reliable sources removed from the airwaves there. They basically have said, we've got a new lineup, a new day. We're going to be fair to Republicans and Democrats. They say, while still holding them accountable. Now, some people will question interviewing Donald Trump. Uh, There are people who argue you shouldn't talk with him. We made a different judgment at NPR. We've interviewed Donald Trump. So it's a thing that, that we believe you do. He's a newsworthy figure. But what are the risks or pitfalls of putting him on? Well, look, this is not just a town hall where Collins is going to have to be navigating and moderating questions from Republicans and uncommitted voters in New Hampshire at St. Anselm's College, but it's also an event that's live. You know, Trump defined his run for uh, the presidency 2015-2016 the first time around by his bombast, but also by overwhelming the press with false claims and lies. And the press carried him live because of the incredible ratings they got and because of the astonishing phenomenon that he was that became a big issue for CNN in intervening years. And, you know, Republicans argued they overcompensated. You mentioned Tucker Carlson. Let's talk about him before you go. The Fox News host, of course, was recently fired after a gigantic defamation settlement that Fox faced. And then he announced yesterday he's starting a new show on Twitter. Here's some of what he said. There aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one is Twitter. Uh, Dave, I've been texting with Tucker Carlson. He says he can't come on NPR right now because he's still under contract to Fox. Is he now going to be in trouble with Fox for going on Twitter? Well, so that's the real question, right? Carlson has proclaimed he's going there. Elon Musk, uh, owner of Twitter, very carefully said to Twitter last night, you know, home for free speech, but also we don't have any arrangement with Carlson yet. Carlson's lawyers have sent note to Fox saying basically they breached his contract and therefore he's entitled to do this, according to Axios. The real question is, you know, Fox wants to sideline Carlson through the end of the 2024 race by paying him a ton of money. Carlson's saying, I don't need the money. I'm going to go to a new place. Okay. Dave, thanks so much. You bet. NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick. Some other news now. A new breast cancer screening recommendation says women should start getting mammograms at age 40. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. 
For years, there's been some confusion about when to initiate breast cancer screening. The leading group of obstetricians and gynecologists has long advised women to start at age 40. But that conflicted with the advice from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force to start by age 50. Now there's a growing consensus that 40 is the time to start. Here's Dr. Carol Mangione of UCLA, who is co-author of the new recommendation. New and more inclusive science has allowed us to expand our prior recommendation and encourage all women to get screening starting at the age of 40 every other year. Mangione says in recent years, there's been a steady uptick in breast cancer among women in their 40s. So rather than telling women in their 40s to consider a mammogram, going forward, the message will be more clear. We want to come out with a strong message that all women should really start screening at 40. The new recommendation applies to people at average risk of developing breast cancer, which is still the second leading cause of cancer death among women. About 42,000 women and 500 men die from breast cancer each year, and black women who get breast cancer are 40% more likely to die from the disease. Dr. Yolanda Tamaro, a breast surgeon at Hackensack Meridian Health, says early detection can help save lives. We know that when we can detect breast cancer at its earliest stages, we have our highest rates of cure. So I think this is certainly a step in the right direction. It's estimated that if all women followed the screening recommendations, it could prevent about 8,000 deaths a year. Dr. Tamaro says she recommends annual mammograms, which is in line with the American College of Radiology recommendation. But Dr. Mangione says after careful review, weighing benefits and risks, the task force came to a different conclusion. We found that every other year was the optimal strategy. The draft recommendation is open for public comment until June 5th. At that point, the task force will consider all comments as it makes its final recommendation. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. So let's talk about artificial intelligence now, or AI. It can be found in all sorts of places today, including phones, weapons, and household smart devices. But there are already concerns about whether the capabilities of the technology have outstripped any guardrails to prevent misuse. We reached out to one company, Anthropic, that says it's working to make AI safer. Our colleague A. Martinez spoke earlier with the company's co-founder, Jack Clark, and A. asked him to describe his own concerns with AI. It's an amazing time in AI right now where systems are getting better far more quickly than our ability to evaluate them. So is our AI system or any AI system a nice AI system or a bad AI system? It's actually hard to tell. There's room for greater government involvement, greater civil society involvement, greater academic involvement in the development of AI because people are nervous because AI is being developed by a very small set of uh, private sector actors. When you mean, though, government involvement, isn't that one of the biggest dangers, is that our lawmakers barely have any understanding of what AI is? People are waking up, including lawmakers, to how AI has a role in national security. It has a role in geopolitics. We've seen AI in various forms being used in the war in the Ukraine. So I think that what you're seeing among policymakers is a pretty rapid desire to get, get up to speed on where it is, and they're much more engaged now than they've ever been. So considering how fast things do move, especially with AI, right now in May of 2023, what would be your number one concern? My number one concern about AI right now 
is AI systems can do more things than their creators know that they can do. It's kind of like if we were in the business of making cars, after you release the car, someone discovers it can fly or go underwater, and you had no idea as the car manufacturer. That's where AI is today. Systems get released, then some 17-year-old of a laptop discovers that the system can do a completely wild thing that its creators did not anticipate. So if that's the case, what would be an easy way to try and tamp that down, or at least uh, just figure out a way where it doesn't move as quickly? So there is one exciting thing happening. In August this year in Las Vegas, there's a hacking conference called DEF CON. And at that conference, Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, Anthropic, my company, and many others are going to have their systems be red teamed by thousands and thousands of hackers. We think a future thing that policymakers might want you to do is before you release a system, have it get attacked by people trying to misuse it and trying to break it. And then you can learn from that. And you have this kind of build it, break it, fix it dynamic. Now, you used to work at uh, OpenAI, which created ChatGPT, and then you left to found Anthropic, um, and, and you left to create uh, what your company calls a safer ChatGPT. So what exactly does that look like? So one thing we've done is we've tried to find ways to make safety more at the core of our technology. So something that we've released this week is the so-called constitution behind our language model, Claude, for ways that the AI system should behave. And we've done that because otherwise, AI systems learn values by interacting with people. And it's really hard to figure out what the values are that they've learned. Jack, the debate around artificial intelligence feels very much like the now. But I think sometimes we are so in the now that we don't see the next. Um, are, we, are we in the right place right now in, in these discussions that we're having? Something which most technologists say um, privately when you talk about AI policy in two or three years, the systems are going to be far more powerful and the problems are going to be far weirder and we can't really anticipate them today. So I think when people are regulating this technology, they're treating it like a normal technology which evolves relatively slowly and relatively predictably. This technology evolves very quickly and relatively unpredictably. So if anything, my main takeaway is the future is going to be a lot weirder than the present and we should have our minds kind of pointed towards that as well as dealing with these these challenges we have today. That's Anthropic co-founder Jack Clark. Jack, thanks a lot. Thanks very much. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in a couple minutes on Morning Edition, our environmental reporter, Miriam Wasser, looks into claims by companies that offer Massachusetts residents energy plans that promise to be 100% green. It's 821. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. 
This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Save 10% until midnight tonight. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We have some good news for the Taylor Swift fans who were left scrambling to find a way to get to next week's concerts. The MBTA is adding more tickets for train service to Gillette Stadium for the shows next Saturday and Sunday only. The T says high demand caused tickets to sell out within a few hours last week. The new tickets will go on sale Friday. Sunny today with a high of 72. Tonight, mostly clear, and it falls to a low around 54. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 80. There's a slight chance of showers in the afternoon. It's 55 degrees in Boston at 823. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at ScrippsNews.com forward slash TV. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is W.B. Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Maybe you've gotten mailers or seen online ads that say all you have to do to help fight climate change is switch your electric provider to a company that offers a 100% renewable energy plan. And maybe you've wondered if those plans actually deliver and really help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. WBOR's Miriam Wasser looked into it. I was looking through Instagram the other day when this ad popped up. You. Yes, you. Stop scrolling and take a few minutes to help save the planet. I care about the planet, so I kept watching. The ad told me all I have to do is sign up to get my electricity from a company called Inspire Clean Energy. You get access to 100% gleaming, glistening, sparkling clean energy for your home. In Massachusetts, residents can choose to buy electricity from a private company instead of their utility. These companies are called competitive suppliers, and I've been reporting on them recently, so I wasn't entirely surprised to get this ad. But watching it made me wonder, if I sign up for one of these plans, will my toaster really be powered entirely by the sun and wind? I called Jennifer Bosco. She's a senior staff attorney with the National Consumer Law Center. The supply companies, they're not like literally bringing, you know, solar power to your home. But you wouldn't necessarily know that from the marketing materials. To understand why you don't magically get green electrons coming into your home, it's helpful to picture the electric grid as a big lake. The lake is fed by all different kinds of streams, which are power generators, like gas plants and wind farms. Once the water in these streams enters the lake, all of the electrons mix together. When you turn on your light, you're drawing water from this mix. Okay, so if I enroll in one of these plans, my home isn't totally powered by renewables. But am I actually even buying 100% renewable power? The answer is, it depends. But in a lot of cases, probably not. And the reason has to do with how the renewable energy market works. 
To help address climate change, Massachusetts has mandated that all electric suppliers buy a certain amount of their power every year from regional renewable energy sources. The goal is to ensure that the New England grid is powered by more renewable energy over time. The state tracks these purchases through something called renewable energy credits. Think of them like a receipt. We are tracking everything that any supplier is doing in compliance with our programs. So everything that's required. We don't necessarily know what they are doing on top of that. Elizabeth Mahoney is the head of the Department of Energy Resources, which oversees this system. She says that right now, suppliers need to buy 22 percent of their electricity from renewables generated in the Northeast. So credits from a wind farm in Maine count. Credits from a wind farm in Iowa do not. But many companies that go above and beyond that 22 percent minimum look to renewables from places like Iowa because they're cheaper. Clean energy from outside New England isn't necessarily bad, Mahoney says, but as a consumer, you should know that the state can't verify or track any of these purchases. We don't know what they're buying. And they are not doing a sufficient job, or really, for the most part, any kind of job, of disclosing what they've purchased. And there's another wrinkle. While some companies that offer 100% renewable plans buy actual renewable electricity on the market, other companies are just buying extra renewable energy credits. They then offset the fossil fuel or nuclear electricity they buy with those credits. It's a practice that Bosco of the National Consumer Law Center calls greenwashing. Unfortunately, I think it's really preying on consumers who are legitimately concerned about the environment and, and want to do something to help address climate change. Not everyone agrees. Calling it greenwashing, I think, is a bit productive. Frank Kaliva is a spokesperson for the Retail Energy Supply Association, an industry group for competitive energy sellers. He says it's not cheating to buy offsets, even if they don't support renewables in exactly the same way. But I can at least be confident that I've done some part to support an environmental benefit. But many consumer advocates say it's not supporting an environmental benefit. Liz Anderson is the deputy chief of the Energy and Telecommunications Division at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. She says that when a supplier buys credits from a wind farm in Iowa, or even the electricity from that wind farm, it does nothing to support renewables in New England. That wind farm is not helping us reach our climate goals and reduce the emissions on the ISO New England grid, which is what we need to be doing. So where does this leave us? It kind of comes down to where you want to put your dollars. Here's Elizabeth Mahoney with the Department of Energy Resources again. People who are concerned enough to purchase extra clean energy I got to assume that customers really want to be supporting clean energy that impacts their lives directly, that impacts their air. So if you're in the market for one of these plans, and especially if you're willing to spend a little extra money to buy renewables, it might be worth figuring out where exactly the power is coming from. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And the Gardner Museum. There is so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. GardnerMuseum.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
Attorneys for former President Donald Trump say they will appeal the decision of a jury in New York. Trump was found liable in writer E. Jean Carroll's civil lawsuit accusing him of sexual assault and defamation. NPR's Giles Snyder says Trump was not found liable of raping Carroll at a Manhattan department store in the mid-1990s. Trump attorney Joe Tacopino told reporters outside the courthouse in Manhattan that he's happy Trump was not branded a rapist, but he called the jury's decision strange and said an appeal is in the works. The jury held Trump liable for battery and defamation, awarding E. Jean Carroll $5 million in damages. That's NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. The pandemic border restriction known as Title 42 is set to expire tomorrow. The result is expected to be a sharp jump in the number of migrants arriving at the U.S. southern border from countries in Central America and elsewhere. Ahead of that expiration, New York's governor, Kathy Hochul, says she's taking steps to prepare for more migrants being sent to her state. I signed an executive order that gives me more flexibility for procurement to be able to also call up the National Guard. Additional migrants have been gathering along the Mexico border this week in preparation for Title 42 to expire. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Former President Donald Trump will be in New Hampshire this evening for a CNN town hall. Critics say the network should not be giving Trump this platform. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports those critics want CNN to cancel the event. Trump will talk to New Hampshire voters the day after a New York jury found him responsible for sexual abuse while facing multiple criminal investigations on other matters. Shauna Thomas of the women's rights group Ultraviolet says Trump has a long record of spreading dangerous misinformation and that CNN should not provide him this high-profile forum. He spews lies and hate. It ended in an insurrection attempt. He effectively tried to destroy American democracy. But David Zasloff, CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, which owns CNN, told MSNBC that the network needs to cover Trump. We need to hear both voices. Republicans are on the air on CNN. Democrats are on the air. I think it's important for America. The event will be hosted by St. Anselm College outside of Manchester. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The owners of the pharmaceutical chemical plant in Newburyport that exploded last week plan to start demolishing the damaged building today. The blast at Sequence PCI Synthesis killed one worker. Investigators say it could take months before they figure out what caused the explosion. This was the company's third safety incident since 2020. The FBI and other federal agencies are now investigating a cyber attack on the city of Lowell. The city's municipal network has been facing the attack for the past three weeks. The Lowell Sun reports a well-known online cyber criminal group is behind the attack. It's unclear if that group has made any demands. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. The Celtics are one loss away from the end of their playoff run. They lost to the Sixers 115-103 to last night at the Garden. Boston trails in the series three games to two. Game six will be tomorrow night in Philadelphia. The Red Sox lost to Atlanta 9-3 last night. The teams will meet again tonight. 
Clear skies with highs in the low 70s today. It stays clear tonight and falls to the mid-50s. Tomorrow near 80 under sunny skies. There's a slight chance we may see some rain in the afternoon. Right now it's 56 degrees in Boston. At 8.34, you're with WBOR. Sunday is Mother's Day. Honor your mom, your wife, your sister, your daughter, or anyone else with Winston Flowers and send them from WBOR to strengthen our journalism. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% until midnight tonight at WBOR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. President Joe Biden and the top four congressional leaders finally sat down together to talk about raising the debt ceiling. After the meeting, both the president and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said they were far apart. We really don't know what a U.S. default would do to the global economy, although experts expect it to be devastating. So the leaders agreed to meet again on Friday to keep talking. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith is with us now with the latest. Good morning, Tam. Good morning. Other than agreeing to meet again, did you see signs of any movement? White House and congressional staff are now set to work through possibilities for the next couple of days, and that's a sign that there's more urgency, at least, than there has been for the last couple of months. But there is still a fundamental disagreement. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says Republicans won't agree to raise the debt limit unless the president and Democrats agree to significant spending cuts. And President Biden says he won't allow the full faith and credit of the United States to be held hostage and says that the conversation about spending cuts needs to be separated from the debt ceiling. There's a lot of politics, posture and engagementship, and it's going to continue for a while. But I'm squarely focused on what matters. And we're getting to work. So is defaulting on the debt still on the table? Well, coming out of the meeting, the Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said that the U.S. won't default, never has, never will. The two Democratic congressional leaders said the same, and McCarthy said he didn't want it to happen. But he didn't, strictly speaking, take it off the table because, I mean, that is the leverage in this fight. I'm hoping that the next two weeks are different. I'm hoping this president understands, as the leader of this nation, that you can't sit back and hold the country hostage. You can't be so extreme in your views that you're not going to negotiate. So they are in the accusing each other of taking hostages phase of this negotiation. Uh, The president's position remains that he is happy to talk separately about ideas for cutting the deficit by raising taxes and cutting spending. Uh, One of the spending cuts that McCarthy has suggested is clawing back some unspent COVID relief dollars. And Biden said yesterday that they could look at that, which is not a no. So so uh, there have been some other ideas tossed around about avoiding default without making a deal and raising the debt ceiling. Uh, d- is the president seriously considering any of those? 
Well, he was asked whether he might invoke the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which says that the validity of the U.S. debt shall not be questioned. Uh, the idea would be that the government would just continue paying its bills, even if the debt ceiling hasn't been lifted. And Biden said that he is considering it as an idea, but for the future. He said there isn't enough time now to do it because it would get tied up in court. So President Biden is scheduled to travel to New York today. What's his message uh, going to be? Well, he is traveling to the congressional district of Mike Lawler, a vulnerable Republican who won in 2022 in a district that Biden carried in 2020. According to the White House, Biden's message will be that Republicans are demanding cuts that hurt teachers, veterans, law enforcement. Lawler will be there, too. And he says his message will be that the president and Republicans need to negotiate. That is NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Tam, thank you so much. You're welcome. Israeli airstrikes on Gaza continue today. The army says it targeted Islamic Jihad operatives at a rocket launch site. Palestinian health officials say that an earlier round of strikes killed at least 15 people, including women and children. These strikes come, according to Israel, in response to recent attacks on them. Dove Lieber covers Israel and the Palestinian territories for The Wall Street Journal. He is in Tel Aviv. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Steve. And I just want to remember the basics here. Gaza is a crowded Palestinian zone surrounded by Israeli fences and walls. So where in that area are these Israeli airstrikes hitting? Yesterday, they took place, uh, some in Gaza City and some in a a town uh, in the south called Rafah. And the one in Gaza City took place in one of the most crowded, uh, densely crowded uh, neighborhoods in Gaza. It struck uh, some six or seven floor size building. Okay, so hitting an urban area. And as I understand it, uh, the Israeli military has acknowledged some collateral damage, as the phrase goes, which tends to mean civilian casualties. Is it clear to you there have been civilian casualties? That's correct. Uh, Both sides, um, Israeli officials uh, acknowledge that civilians were killed. In fact, the majority, as you said at the beginning of this uh, piece, that the majority of people killed by the strikes were civilians, 12 out of 15. In fact, Israeli officials knew uh, that uh, family members, including the wives and some of the children of these Islamic Jihad commanders would be there uh, when they killed them. They decided to uh, carry out the operation. Anyway, according to them, they had held off assassinating these figures in the past uh, because uh, they were worried about too much civilian damage. And this time they they believe that this is considered a proportional uh, response uh, to the threat that those Islamic Jihad commanders uh, pose to Israeli civilians. I want to understand how Islamic Jihad fits into the broader picture here. Uh, The Gaza Strip, the Gaza area, is controlled by Hamas, a Palestinian group. Islamic Jihad is there, but separate. Who are they and what are they doing and what do they want? That's correct. The Islamic Jihad is the second or potentially the first biggest uh, uh, militant group in the Gaza Strip. And for many years, we saw uh, Israel squaring off mainly with Hamas and Islamic Jihad kind of in the background. But what we've seen in the last few years is as a kind of reverse of this. Hamas is the governing body of Gaza. It has to control the population and it is responsible for the population. Islamic Jihad is not. It doesn't govern there. Uh, it receives 
guns, money, and weapons from Iran, just like Hamas does. But Islamic Jihad doesn't have the same kind of responsibility towards the people who live in Gaza. And because of this, Israeli strategy has been to force Hamas to balance uh, the economic benefits of fighting Israel for the people who live in Gaza. And Hamas, you know, it doesn't want to... Um, angered civilians who live there. But Islam Jihad, uh, it's not the same situation. So what we've seen the past two years, really, is Israel squaring off with Islamic Jihad and trying to keep Hamas out of the equation. In fact, one of the big questions today, really, is whether Hamas will finally rejoin uh, the fray. And when Islamic Jihad retaliates, will Hamas join them as well? Dove Lieber covers Israel and the Palestinian territories for The Wall Street Journal. Really appreciate your insights. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I do feel better informed. That was very helpful. Now, this afternoon, and all things considered, Florida governor and possible Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis had a successful legislative session from his point of view, but polls show him falling behind Donald Trump. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. Welcome to Wednesday on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, the implications for Massachusetts as the COVID public health emergency ends tomorrow, more than three years after it began. Low 70s and clear skies today, still clear tonight, and temperatures drop back to the mid-50s. We warm up to near 80 tomorrow, and it'll be sunny. There's a slight chance we may see some rain in the afternoon. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. The Boston-based firm Warburg Pincus is acquiring an Illinois biomanufacturing business for more than $4 billion. Under the deal, Warburg will be responsible for around 1,700 biopharma solutions employees in Indiana and Germany. Union workers at UMass Amherst are asking Governor Healy to stop the school from stripping them of their state employment status. That's according to the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Last week, the university said it planned to lay off more than 80 fundraising employees who refused to transfer to the private sector. Employees say it'll mean a loss in benefits, including retirement funds. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Tomorrow, Massachusetts lifts the public health emergency that state officials declared at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic more than three years ago. We wanted to know more about what that actually means and the impact it may have on residents. So we invited Boston University School of Public Health professor Dr. David Hamer in to help us with that. Dr. Hamer, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. My pleasure. Thank you. What actually happens when a state of emergency ends? 
The CDC has already announced that they're going to be changing sort of the metrics that they track. And I think that's already become difficult because there's been a lot more home testing. And so that those home test results don't necessarily feed into the national data. It's going to make it a little harder to know if there's a new surge. The availability of free tests, which has been a, you know, very useful for many people, especially those with fewer resources, um, that, that's going to dry up. Hypothetically, if we don't have this information, how will we know if there is a surge at some point? I, mean, I think we will be able to recognize it. One measure that's really sensitive to what's going on in the community is wastewater surveillance, and, and it sounds like that will continue. I think that there will be a need for intensification of surveillance measures to identify an, a new outbreak. The White House has had a set of advisors in recently, and they've been showing different models, and, and basically somewhere between 10 to 20 percent or as high as 40 percent they estimate is the risk of a giant wave um, in, the, in the next one to two years. So we're not completely safe yet. If you were in charge, would you end the state of emergency now? Yes, and I, I might have done it even sooner than now. The last few months have really been calm. Our ability to contain the infection and control it and try and reduce severe disease, hospitalization, and death is, is very good right now. The state and the city of Boston are lifting requirements for their employees to have vaccinations. Should that be happening at the same time? Forcing people to have vaccines is a challenging topic. It was important during the time when there was a lot of transmission. Fortunately, in Massachusetts, we've done relatively well in terms of getting a high level of, of immunization in our population. And many of the people that haven't had the vaccine um, have had the disease, and that also is, is protective. Healthcare workers and other sort of frontline workers that are likely to have contact with patients, it may be wise to, to have a, a vaccine mandate in, in, in that setting. Most testing sites have closed. The state's largest insurers say they'll no longer provide free at-home COVID tests, no doubt making it harder for some people to access testing. Does that have a direct impact? I think it may. If we have another surge and people don't have tests at home or can't easily access tests, this is going to lead to delays in diagnosis. But also for individuals who are high risk, it's really important for them if they become symptomatic to be tested early so that they can then start treatment, ideally within five days of onset of symptoms. And if there's a delay in accessing testing, that could lead to a delay in treatment. I should mention, you just showed me that you have your own mask in, in, in your coat pocket. Do you think that we still need to be doing that? Does it have an effectiveness? I think right now you know, the risk is very low, but if you're in a crowded setting with poor ventilation, with poor air circulation, like on an airplane, especially when you're first boarding or deplaning, when they, they don't have the sort of the, the full filtration system on or on a crowded metro or a bus, then it may be reasonable to wear a mask, especially if you're at higher risk or if you have high-risk um, family members that you're going to have contact with afterwards. That said, looking at the, the wastewater surveillance data from Boston, we're, we're down at levels of SARS-CoV-2 in the water system that are the lowest they've been since the pandemic began. Three years after it began, does it feel like a bookend to you? Does it feel like something is ending and you're going back to normal life? It feels more like the epilogue, like you know, the book's not quite done yet. Much of it has, has ended, um, at least for the time being. I think I'm still nervous that a, another variant that is substantially different may arise and you know, still 
think we need to be cautious for the next year or two. Dr. David Hamer is a Boston University School of Public Health professor. Dr. Hamer, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. You're getting through the week with WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about efforts by the U.N. to raise money to address an environmental disaster in the Red Sea using a GoFundMe campaign. It's 849. It's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO. My mother died 20 years ago on Valentine's Day, just a few months after her cancer diagnosis. After that, the post office forwarded all her mail to me a few states away. Even after she was gone, she got more mail than I ever did. Letters that painted a vivid picture of who she was. One from a former patient who had no idea my mom had died. Her foodie magazines, solicitations from political candidates. Then, a letter arrived from a good cause she'd given to for years, wondering why her donations had stopped so suddenly. On the envelope in big, bold letters, it said, Natalie, where are you? We miss you. I miss her, too, every day, after all these years. I wish she knew I'd come home to Boston, a city she loved, to run this station. She'd be so proud. My mom loved flowers, too. Send Winston flowers to your mom and support WBUR, a really good cause. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. New federal data show inflation slowed down slightly in April with prices 4.9 percent higher compared to a year ago. A New York jury ordered former President Donald Trump to pay $5 million in restitution after being found liable of sexual assault and defamation. Massachusetts migrant aid groups are preparing for an influx of people as pandemic-era immigration restrictions end today. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC. Sunny skies and temperatures in the low 70s today, tonight mid-50s, then tomorrow near 80 degrees and sunny again. It's 57 degrees in Boston at 852. If airline tickets are going like hotcakes for this summer, why are Airbnb's vacation rentals expecting to lose sizzle? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, we just learned that inflation eased just slightly in April. Using this fresh data today, we can say that consumer prices went up 4.9% in a year, down from 5% the month before. That is the 10th month in a row that inflation has slowed. Bot, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, also measures inflation by region in one part of the country where prices have been rising quite briskly is the Mountain West. Marketplace's Savannah Marr has that. Housing costs account for a third of the CPI. 
And during the pandemic, those costs have exploded in cities like Boise, Salt Lake, and Phoenix, says Nick Sly, VP of the Federal Reserve's Denver branch. The Rocky Mountain West had more momentum, had more upward growth in the prices of their shelter, either rent or houses to, to purchase. So there's going to take more to unwind that momentum compared to the rest of the country. The other thing driving inflation in the region is energy. Rob Godby, an economist at the University of Wyoming, says the Mountain West hasn't gotten as much relief at the gas pump, thanks in part to an oil refinery shutdown in Colorado. Given that energy permeates into other categories like you know, your shelter costs and also transportation. It also affects food costs. He says more expensive energy drives up prices across the board in the Mountain West. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Market stock index futures bounced up on this inflation news today. S&P futures up three-tenths of a percent now. NASDAQ futures up four-tenths percent. Dow futures are up two-tenths of a percent. Now, the good news from Airbnb is that it had a fine first three months of this year. The bad news being shared by the firm is that the good times are tapering down. The company says it expects fewer bookings overall when its current quarter is complete at the end of June. Strange, right? Especially with airlines raking it in. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with some details. Yeah, uh, Airbnb is trying to limit expectations, David, for the weeks ahead. And the reason they're giving is that a year ago during this time, there was unusually good business on Airbnb because of pent-up demand. You may remember that by March of last year, the world had gone through the emergence of the COVID Omicron variant and the subsequent surge in infections. And after that, Airbnb saw bookings shoot up. And that's about this time last year. Well, compared to then, it expects to do less business this year. But it's also reporting that people have become more price conscious. Average daily rates, that's how Airbnb measures prices across its platform. The company expects those rates to be lower compared to the second quarter of last year. All right. And the airlines are anticipating a very busy summer travel season. This Airbnb warning, I don't know, doesn't seem to fit. Yeah. And part of this is that, you know, you have more choices for where to stay, right? People are less worried about staying in hotels now. Marriott had a strong first quarter. And Airbnb says there's another element to this, too, that there's a change in the mix of bookings. It's seeing more bookings in dense urban areas, big cities. And according to the company, those bookings tend to, on average, be lower in price than other offerings. So that's one factor. Another is that Airbnb has gotten a lot of complaints about pricing. It's made changes. It's given host tools to better compete on price. And the company thinks there will be more of that kind of price competition ahead. All right, Nova, thank you. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. Now for an unusual crowdfunding meets public awareness campaign. The United Nations has set up a GoFundMe to help raise $129 million from anyone who wants to help. As Daniel Ackerman reports, it's about avoiding an environmental disaster in the Red Sea. Parked four miles off the west coast of Yemen sits an old oil tanker, the FSO Safar. It's got about a million barrels of crude aboard and, says Yemen's ambassador to the U.S., Mohammed al-Hadrami, for the last eight years, the Safar has done nothing but rust. There's a ticking bomb off the shore of Yemen ready to explode at any moment. 
explode or spring a leak because the ship has barely been maintained since about 2014. That's when Houthi rebels seized the area from Yemen's government amid a brutal civil war. The Safar can no longer move on its own, and experts say the ship needs intervention now. If we don't act, the Red Sea will turn black. David Gressley is the UN's humanitarian coordinator for Yemen. He says an oil spill would make Yemen's hunger crisis worse by poisoning local fisheries. It could also halt drinking water desalination and bring shipping to a standstill. The good news? After years of negotiation, the UN has signed a deal with the Houthis to avert disaster. The plan is to transfer the oil off the Safar onto a new, more secure tanker. So how to pay for the operation? We thought that a crowdfunding would be a way to take it to the global public, to generate local awareness, also media awareness. And then secondly, of course, we needed funding. 129 million bucks of funding, to be exact, of which the UN hopes to raise 29 million from the public. The uh, business case for this is very straightforward. Just to clean up, if there's a spill, it would cost $20 billion. So $29 million looks really small in comparison. You don't even have to be a finance major to figure that one out. You don't, but there's a reason some in the global community might be slow to pony up, says Ian Ralby, CEO of the maritime consultancy IR Concilium. We have to be prepared for this to, to ultimately end up being essentially a very expensive gift to the Houthis. They get a free tanker. I mean, that's a pretty good deal. A good deal for a group the U.S. has labeled a terrorist organization as recently as 2021. The Houthis still control the area and would likely keep control of the oil and the new tanker, at least until the U.N. strikes a new deal. I'm Daniel Ackerman for Marketplace. And the term artificial intelligence is being poured on everything like ketchup these days in the manner of the word blockchain a while back. The fast food place Wendy's now says it's deploying AI at its drive throughs using Google Cloud's generative system. It'll try to upsell you on things. Don't forget the frosty. And if you say milkshakes that are frosty, it'll know, apparently. The company says the voice will be so human-like you might not know it is not a human, which means, knowing those drive throughs it'll probably sound like this, which translates to the AI trying to say, would you like 1,200 more calories with that double stack? In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.